Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good evening. It's an honor to be able to be here to introduce such a great American patriot. Um, the unique nature of war against Al-Qaeda has required intelligence of the highest quality and precision. To meet the demands of this conflict, the U.S. intelligence community, led by the CIA, has not just seen its budget dramatically increase since 9-11, it's also had to adopt even more aggressive operational methods and thrust into leadership positions a new generation of women and men to meet the unique challenges of the war on terror. Ambassador Crumpton exemplifies this new generation of intelligence leadership. In fact, it may be fair to say that Hank was in many ways the standard bearer in the aftermath of 9-11. Ambassador Crumpton's operational skills honed in numerous frontline positions during a 24-year career at the CIA made him the immediate choice by senior CIA leadership to plan and execute the counterattack against Al-Qaeda and their Taliban protectors in 2001. The results of that campaign are well known and are documented very greatly in his book. Prior to his retirement from the CIA in 2005, Hank subsequently held a series of key leadership roles at the CIA, including chief of the NR division and in the US government where he served as State Department coordinator for counterterrorism at an ambassadorial rank from 2005 to 2007 under Secretary Rice. In short, Ambassador Crumpton is uniquely qualified to provide us with an assessment of how effective our efforts have been to date against Al-Qaeda, the challenges we continue to face, and the institutions and individuals we will need to deal with this constantly evolving threat. <coughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ambassador Henry Crumpton. Laurie, thanks for that great introduction. That was very kind and, and very generous. And I'd like to thank, of course, uh, Beth and uh, the World Affairs Council for this invitation. This is the second time I've, I've been here, and I'm really privileged to, to be back. I always like coming to Texas. I'd like to thank Hillwood, a Perot company, for their sponsorship, and particularly to recognize uh, Mr. and Mrs. Perot. I'm really honored by your presence here. Thank you very much. I've got uh, several friends in the audience. I'd, I, I'm not going to point out all of them, but I would like to note that uh, Ambassador Jim Oberwetter is here. He was the U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia, and Jim has really been helpful to me in my transition from the government world to the private sector. So, uh, Jim, I'm, I'm especially pleased that uh, uh, you, could, you could make it. Thanks. Yeah. Laurie, it's always good seeing you, and uh, I know that Jay is very busy, hard at work in Hawaii now, so uh, just send him my regards, okay? I, I, I thought I came prepared, um, and I think I have, except for one thing. It, I wanted to read from the book, and I forgot to bring a book with me. <laughs> and so, sir, I promise you I will return the borrowed book. I, um, I just wanted to reassure you on that, and thank you very much for the, for the quick loan. I'm especially pleased that we've got three high schools represented here. The future leadership of America is nothing more important. I also would like to recognize uh, uh, an important teacher here, Anna Sifford. She is the recipient of the World Affairs Council International Educator of the Year for North Texas. Uh, Anna, where are you? I'd like to say hello to you. Thank you, thank you for coming. Uh, yeah. See, educating our youth, there is no greater mission. And that's 
in part why I wrote the book, to educate our youth and all of our citizens, including some of our policymakers and the customers of intelligence. I, uh, I'm going to focus on really three things, three words, if you will. I, I'm fascinated with words and writing. My, my mother's a school teacher, a kindergarten teacher, and, and uh, she sat me down at a very young age and taught me how to read and write and took me to the library, uh, the Warren County, Georgia Library, and I uh, have always been fascinated by the written word. And there are three words I want to emphasize tonight, imagination, intelligence, and invasion. Imagination. I had a lot of it as a young boy, growing up in a small town in Georgia. And with my mother's encouragement, read and read about US history, the Revolutionary War in particular, became fascinated with the heroes of the American Revolution, especially Francis Marion, known as a swamp fox, one of America's early masters of intelligence and covert action and irregular warfare. And then there were others throughout U.S. history. In World War II, had the birth of the OSS. You had Merle's Marauders in Burma and many other great heroic examples. And this stirred my imagination. It informed my play. It informed my thinking. It informed my dreams, really. And that's the first chapter of the book. It's called Dreaming. And then what really sealed the deal in terms of the intelligence business I was sitting at the Knox Theater in Warren County, Georgia, right in the middle, looking at the big screen, and I saw Thunderball. It was Sean Connery playing James Bond. <laughs> and I wasn't too keen in the fancy clothes or the fancy drinks, but I promise you, I wanted everything else in that movie. <laughs> and I was determined to get it. This sense of, of mission, uh, this sense of creativity, um, it was unbounded at that age. But somehow I found enough focus to sit down and write a letter to the CIA. I was about 10 or 11 at the time. I'm not sure exactly when. I can only imagine it was the boy scrawl on some ruled notebook paper. But you know what was incredible? A couple of weeks after writing that letter, I come home from school and go to my bedroom, and there's a response sitting on my desk. I open that up, and the CIA says, thank you very much for your interest in employment. <laughs> would, would you please grow up and reapply? <laughs> and, and that's exactly what I did. I reapplied at age 21, because by then my imagination was a little more bounded, a little more focused. And I learned through some great teachers and coaches and civic leaders and preachers that your dreams can come true. It just takes a lot of work and a lot of attention. Let me give you an example, and I relate this in the book. I was taking a geography course when I was in elementary school, and I mixed up the states, Vermont and New Hampshire. Got everything else right. But that just stuck in my craw. I could not stand making that mistake. So. I came back to my, my, my room, and I'm sure I must have asked my mother, but it, somehow I got a, a map of the world, and I put that map of the world up in my room, and as a boy, I memorized every country on the planet. And even today, I can tell you, every nation on Earth. So I began to focus my imagination. It was, if you will, a deliberate practice. I knew that I wanted to do something beyond Warren County, Georgia, Beyond the U.S., I knew I wanted to serve my nation. I knew it wanted to be global, whatever that was. And more and more I thought about intelligence and was drawn to that. So imagination is important, particularly when it's informed, when you exercise discipline, and you really practice in a deliberate way and measure. Intelligence. There are lots of qualities in an intelligence officer. Imagination, I think, is one of them. 
but also an appreciation for knowledge, an insatiable curiosity for the bigger world. And I pursued that with great enthusiasm and rigor. I left home when I was 16 years old. I wanted to see what was out there. And I made some mistakes along the way, some big ones. But I learned from them and I course corrected. I learned about myself perhaps most importantly when young prospective analysts or operators come to me and say, well, what do I need to study? What languages do I need to focus on? Or what technical skill should I acquire? And those are all, of course, enormously important. But the most important thing I, I say is, well, you've got to have some knowledge of yourself, who you are. Because if you're in a stressful environment and you don't know how you're going to react, you don't know your strengths, your weaknesses, well, then you're shortchanging yourself you're shortchanging your colleagues and your nation. It's about a liberal education. It's about knowing who you are. This is nothing new. This is what the ancients taught us. Good intelligence officers have that. They know who they are. And they also understand and work to understand what they don't know. And within that universe of ignorance, what's important to know? That's the mark of a good intelligence officer, which helps us think about intelligence itself, the discipline of intelligence. It's not just data. It has to be, well, first, accurate. And I made some mistakes along the way. I was bamboozled a couple times by some foreign nationals, some assets I had recruited. One was a fabricator. Another was a dangle of a hostile intelligence service. Those are hard lessons to learn as a young officer, but I never forgot them because the information they were providing me was not accurate. In addition to being accurate, intelligence, it must be relevant. It must matter. Another characteristic, it needs to be timely. You can have accurate information. It can be relevant, but if it doesn't get to the end user in time, it doesn't matter, and that's what's important. The fourth part is it has to be actionable. Someone has to put this to use, whether it's the President of the United States, the soldier, the law enforcement officer, the diplomat, the trade representative, and increasingly civic leaders. When we think about protecting the homeland, if you're a civic leader, when you're a mayor, you're involved in public health, you have responsibility for children, and there's a particular threat, you are a potential customer of intelligence. So accurate, relevant, timely, and actionable. You've got to do something with the intelligence. And what I've tried to portray in the book through a series of stories is to outline the theory and the practice and even the policies. And I emphasize the responsibility of policymakers, the responsibility of intelligence consumers. And let me use an example of that if I may. Third word is invasion. When you read papers, articles, or talk to experts, academics, or journalists, or others, people that are educated, well-informed, and they're speaking about the U.S. response to 9-11, more often than not, they talk about the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. How, how many have heard that, the invasion of Afghanistan? It's sort of common in our discussions and in our lexicon. Well, I disagree with that term. Words are very important, and this is a, a prime example, example. There was no U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. On December 7, 2001, when Kandahar fell, it was the last urban stronghold of the Taliban. December 7th, an important date for other reasons. 90 days in fact, less than 90 days after 9-11, Kandahar fell. A quarter of al-Qaeda leadership lay dead on the battlefield. Perhaps 10, 20, maybe 30,000 Taliban were dead. The remnants were fleeing to Pakistan. We had secured more than 20 al-Qaeda sites, including their anthrax laboratories near Kandahar. These sites were being exploited for terrific intelligence and informing operators and law enforcement 
all over the world. And they, in turn, were capturing and killing more al-Qaeda and preventing terrorist attacks around the world. It was an intelligence bonanza. All this in less than 90 days. How many Americans were on the ground December 7, 2001? Less than 500. There were 110 CIA officers under my command and about 300 to 400 special forces. The Marines came in shortly thereafter uh, near Kandahar and established a small base there. Less than 500 Americans there. You ask Afghans today about that U.S. invasion in 01, they don't know what you're talking about. The reason for it is it was their victory. Afghan tribal leaders rallied their people, and with our support, with our encouragement, with our help stitching together all their various local military objectives and bringing it into a coherent, synchronized strategy with our air power linked by special forces on the ground working with my teams, we enabled, we empowered the Afghans to take back their country from the Taliban and those foreign invaders. And the invaders, this is really critical, was not us. If you're HCIA guys that drop out of the sky and meet some tribal leaders, you're surrounded by the Taliban, that's not much of an invasion. And that's what the Afghans experienced. And after the first two CIA teams went in, special forces caught up with us and we started sending in combined teams. So you went from about eight or 10 to 20. This was not an invasion. It was about understanding the Afghan country, not just the physical terrain, but the human terrain. And this is the value of intelligence. Starting in September of 1999, I started sending teams into Afghanistan, working with our Afghan allies to build these intelligence networks. On that horrible day, 9-11, the CIA had more than 100 human sources and subsources in Afghanistan, in every province, among every tribe. We also had forged deep relations, trusting, confidence, relations with our Afghan allies. The United Front, also known as the Northern Alliance in particular. So we knew not only the country, and not only Al-Qaeda, the primary enemy, and their Taliban allies, we also knew the Afghan people. We knew our friends, our prospective friends in Afghanistan. We knew how to empower them so they could take back their country. Basically unhinge that alliance between the Taliban and other tribal leaders and open up the door for our onslaught against Al-Qaeda. And that goes to a unique type of intelligence that I'd like to touch on. It wasn't just intelligence that was accurate, relevant, timely, and actionable. It was a deeper intelligence based on an empathetic understanding built over the last two years of shared risk. And I had some pretty heated debates within the CIA about this where some leaders, not Director Tennant, but others, wanted us to have a more conservative approach to collection of the intelligence in Afghanistan, establish secure communications, and we did that. But I stress that unless we are there breaking bread with them and sharing risk, they will not trust us to the degree that we will need when the time comes. And we were able to do that. It's empathetic understanding. It's mapping the human terrain. It's a deep intelligence. So there really was no invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. And it wasn't just empathetic understanding. It was responding to that. And it was more than just finding and killing the enemy. There was plenty of that. But it was about responding to the needs of our prospective allies. From mid-October to mid-December 2001, the Central Intelligence Agency, working with U.S. military, the Air Force in particular, dropped 1.69 million pounds of supplies into Afghanistan. From 110 airdrops in that 60-day period to 41 locations. And what's Remarkable, not that it was just the biggest airdrop since Vietnam, but each 
supply drop was specifically designed to what our Afghan friends requested, what they needed. So put yourself in the place of an Afghan tribal leader. Winter's coming on, you have 2,000 people you're responsible for, your family, your clan, your tribe, the Taliban are nearby, you're engaged in skirmishes, and you turn to these handful of CIA and Special Forces guys and you give them a list. My people are cold, they're hungry, they need medicine. Yeah, we need weapons and ammo, but I have women and children here, I've got to take care of them. Otherwise, my warriors, you know, how can they go fight? Within 48 to 72 hours, this was com coming from the sky, falling out of the heavens. And it wasn't just supplies, it was the responsive action. It was a demonstration of trust and understanding. And by those actions, and fighting side by side with our Afghan allies, we conveyed upon them a deep sense of pride and prestige and honor. And there's nothing more important on the battlefield. And that's not my conclusion. You can read the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides, one of many lessons in that great book. For all you students out here, go buy it, read it. Pride, prestige, and honor. There's nothing more powerful on the battlefield, whether you're in ancient Greece or you're in Iraq and Afghanistan today. We understood this. This was the kind of intelligence that was so valuable. In contrast, if I may, how did we approach Iraq? We invaded Iraq. And after we invaded Iraq, we disbanded the Iraqi army. We disbanded the Ba'ath Party. So if you're a 20-year-old Iraqi and you have been humiliated, you have no sense of belonging, what are you going to do? You're going to pick up a weapon and you're going to fight the invader. Tom Ricks wrote a very good book called Fiasco. I recommend that to you if you haven't read it. Well, why are we still having the problems in Afghanistan if we did these things right in 0102? Why are we still there? 130,000 U.S. and allied troops, including Canadian troops that are serving bravely beside us. Well, I think in part, we never learned the lesson, or if we did, we forgot it, that it was not an invasion. It was about the empowerment of the Afghan people. They know how to fight. They know how to work really hard. Somehow, we never learned that lesson. This book is about a lot of things. As I mentioned, theory, practice, operations, policy. Uh, it's also, most importantly, I believe, about people. And when I started writing the book, it was frankly too academic, and I struggled with it for the first six months. This took me two years to write. It was not easy. In fact, I was reading about what other authors say about writing, and the best one, at least for me, was that when you write a book, it's the mental equivalent of digging a ditch. And uh, that's what it felt like. And maybe even worse, because you'd dig for a while and you'd go back and look at it, it was so bad you'd have to start all over again. That was particularly true the first six months. It wasn't until I came upon a very simple idea with some encouragement from my editor that if I just tell some stories about people, foreign nationals that I had recruited, agents that I had run, men and women that had worked for me, and all the great things that they have done, the men that under my command died on the battlefield, how their families responded to that. So perhaps most of all, this is a story about not just Americans, but about our important allies and our friends all over the world. And it's about the families. You think, well, we don't know much about operations officers in the CIA clandestine service, and well, that's understandable. You know very little about them. But guess what? You know even less about their families. And their support is truly remarkable. And if you'll allow me, I'd like to conclude my remarks by reading a passage uh, from the book. Uh, this is on page 315. 
And this is about my wife. And uh, this is at the conclusion of a terrific career. It was really a dream come true from a, a boy raised in a small town in Georgia by a mother who's a teacher and a father who's a surveyor and, for and forester and a great woodsman. He taught me so much. But this is about my wife, and at the end of, of my career, I didn't know it was the end, really, but after 24 years of service, Secretary Rice had begun exploring with me if I wanted to work for her, leave the clandestine service, leave the CIA, and be the coordinator for counterterrorism with the rank of ambassador at large and serve in a very public way. And it would require a public Senate confirmation and a lot of public diplomacy all over the world. It was pretty shocking to consider something like that. Well, imagine me coming home and sitting down with my wife. We were in the kitchen. I'll always remember this discussion. And I, I outlined this prospect to her. This is what I write about. She had lived a life of cover perhaps more difficult than mine. Now I was asking her to abandon the storyline that she had maintained and nurtured for 24 years on four continents. I was asking her to explain to all that her husband had never been just a minor government functionary. Instead, he was a spy and a counterterrorism operative. Now he would be a diplomat. He would be an ambassador, not to any one country. And I, let me interject. She said, well, does this mean ambassador to Paris or Rome? <laughs> and I said, no, it has a grand title of ambassador at large. And she says, well, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> she had managed the entertainment of hundreds of foreign nationals at various homes, from small dinners to huge garden parties. She had run counter surveillance, dropped me off for agent meetings, and help me remember all those names that I would otherwise forget. She had learned to cook warthog tacos, <laughs> impala steaks, and elan roast. Yes, we spent 10 years in Africa. She had boiled and filtered water so it was fit to drink. She had battled mosquitoes and malaria for years. She had tended to three boys who, all at one point, had suffered those unknown diseases so common in sub-Saharan Africa. One time in an African city street, she had fought off a purse snatcher with one hand while holding a baby in the other. She had cried over our convulsing dying Labrador, poisoned by would-be burglars. Working unpaid, unrecognized, with her spy husband and raising rambunctious boys in a string of foreign countries, she understood and embraced those missions. But this transition from spouse and partner of a covert operator to that of a public government official was unexpected, unknown, and bizarre. We both struggled to understand what such a shift would mean. Um, and so you may notice that I dedicate the book to the families, the families who serve and sacrifice uh, unknown and unsung. And in the acknowledgement part of the book, I also stress my gratitude to our allies, Canada in particular, Australia, UK, and others, but also our friends in the Emirates, the UAE. You know, their special forces have been fighting side by side with us in Afghanistan for years. You can't say that about all the NATO allies. Jordanians, I acknowledge, and there are many others. Not acknowledged in the book, but to name just a few. Mexico, just next door. You have any idea what's going on next door? 50,000 dead since 2006. There's some remarkable heroes down there, some great partners. We should do better by them. Bearing in mind that violence is fueled by our drug consumption, 25 to $40 billion a year flow into the enemy out of our pockets. Columbia was referenced to a program on Columbia and the FART here. What a great success story, some real heroes there. In Indonesia, the Philippines, Malaysia, great progress in Southeast Asia. 
since those horrible Bali bombings of 2002. Many other partners around the world. In the future we face, intelligence is going to be of greater value. That's what I stress. This empathetic understanding, this deep intelligence is going to be more important. And if we do that right, it will lead to even better alliances with states and nation states and will strengthen our nation and protect our citizens. Thank you very much for your attention. And may, uh, Thank you very much, Ambassador Crumpton. And we are going to take some questions. Um, but I also wanted to say that I, I think not only do we have an oversold crowd, but I think we may be getting close to the books being sold out. So, um, and I know with your speech, more people are going to want to buy them. So hopefully everybody can download it on a Kindle or electronically, or we'll have more available. But fascinating presentation. I cannot wait to read your book. And, Ambassador Oberwetter beforehand said what a great, great read it is. So I, I just encourage everyone to, to get a book, and if they're not available tonight, we'll figure out a way to get them for you, or you can, again, download them. I said that the first question is from a, a high school student, um, and we have one from, an, from Allen High School. Um, and I think we'll go with, um, let's see. Okay, kind of interesting. Uh, they're all really good, so um, if, we, if we don't have questions from the audience that aren't as good, we have at least four that here that are great. Um, how did you react when you became aware of Osama bin Laden's death? And that is from Lily Lee from Allen High School. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks for the, uh, the question. I, I described this in the book because it's such an important event. I, in fact, uh, in the early part of the book, I write about my childhood about and my mother teaching me and about all the time I spent with my father in the woods helping him work uh, cruising timber or surveying or, or trying to keep up with him when he was bird hunting and uh, that that day I got the news uh, I'd gone to church with my parents um, just a year ago and that afternoon my father and I had walked in the woods and I got a text that night later on it was from uh, my dear friend Rich, and Rich is one of the main characters in the book. He's a, a great American hero, and he works with me now. But Rich sent me a text, Bin Laden dead. About a minute later, my wife calls from Florida. She was visiting her mother in Florida. Same news. I turn on the TV. I get my parents to come out, and we're watching, we're watching the TV, and I'm sitting there looking at them, looking at TV, and... Uh, it was an important moment. It was, uh, it was no celebration, no high fives. It was just, a, for me, a, a grim satisfaction. And uh, it was particularly poignant for me because I was, I was there with my parents. And as I learned more later about the operation, I was, uh, I was really proud because it built, I believe, on some of the work that we did. And, and part of that was this deep integration between CIA and the U.S. military, particularly the Special Forces. And of course, that mission against bin Laden last year was carried out by some very brave Navy SEALs, but that was basically driven by some very terrific all-source intelligence collection. And in fact, the operation was even launched under the authorities of the CIA. And anytime you get really good intelligence in the sensor and the shooter, merged together, whether it's a technical platform like the Predator that's armed, where sensor and shooter work in concert, or like the Bin Laden raid, where you've got CIA intelligence and U.S. Navy SEALs coming together to bring forth what I think is one of the most just covert actions in the history of our nation. So I was very proud.
Mr. Ambassador, did you ever uh, have anything to do with looking for bin Laden, uh, number one? And number two, what do you think about the, the uh, attitude of drone strikes and killing um, that way versus capturing and getting intelligence? Uh, Mr. Jerry Ballridge, thanks for coming. You're, you're, you're a, dear, a dear friend. So, so pleased you could make it. Uh, good questions. Uh, the CIA, it wasn't just me, it was the CIA, started looking at bin Laden long before 9-11. They established an office in 1996 dedicated to bin Laden, to al-Qaeda, and began a systematic global collection of intelligence against uh, that enemy. Now, this accelerated, particularly after the August 98 bombings of our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, and that's when I began working counterterrorism full-time. The CIA loaned me to the FBI. In fact, it was a great year working at FBI headquarters as the number two in their counterterrorism division. And the FBI had a senior special agent that was loaned to the CIA at the time. Uh, this had been going on for a couple of years. In fact, we called it an exchange of hostages because the CIA guy would go there and the FBI guy would go over there. Uh, but it, it, it worked pretty well. And so, yes, uh, starting for me personally in August of 98 working for the FBI. And then in the summer of 99, I went back to the CIA and was the deputy in the counterterrorism center responsible for all CIA counterterrorism operations worldwide, not just against al-Qaeda, but Hezbollah, the FARC, the PKK. And one of the challenges at that time uh, was, and it's, and it's understandable uh, before 9-11, less so now perhaps, but how you divvy up the resources. Uh, Rich was the head of that al-Qaeda shop uh, in September 99. In fact, Rich took the first team into Afghanistan. Uh, he was always demanding more resources, but at the time, Hezbollah had killed far more Americans than al-Qaeda had. Iran, many argued, posed a greater threat. The, the horrible fighting uh, in, in Colombia against the FARC, there were many other competing terrorist targets, if you will. But even with that, almost half of our resources in the counterterrorism center, even before 9-11, were devoted to al-Qaeda and to chasing uh, bin Laden. One of the, the important stories I, I relate is, is the predator drones, going to your second question, and I go into great detail about the development of the predator as a collection tool to complement that human source reporting that I referred to earlier. And it was a dramatic success. In fact, in the late summer of 2000, driven by our human reporting, we flew a predator over Tarnak Farms, a, a compound near Kandahar, and sure enough, uh, we had Bin Laden. If you saw the 60 Minutes interview about three weeks ago, it has a video clip of that. And Bin Laden, six foot four, white robes, getting out of a uh, uh, SUV, security detail around him. It confirmed our, our human reporting, but we really had no way to strike him at the time. Cruise missiles would take four to five hours. The White House said, well, where is he going to be four or five hours from now? Of course, we didn't know that. And from that point of frustration, and with help from the White House, DOD, and others, we developed the Arm Predator. The first successful Hellfire shot was in February of 2001, and then the CIA deployed an unarmed and an armed Predator into theater. And when 9-11 happened, the President gave full authorities to the CIA. And that was instrumental, of course, in our campaign throughout 0102, and it still is today, and explains why the CIA has got such an important leadership role in that platform. Your question about are we becoming too dependent on that? I think maybe we are. I don't know that, but it's a concern I have. The ratio in Afghanistan, 01, we had about, well, certainly by 9-11, 100 sources, and we recruited many more, in fact, recruited tribal armies. So you had this massive human network all across the country, and you only had two drones. That's not a bad ratio. Now, I would have enjoyed maybe two, three, or four more drones, but if you depend on technology, whatever it is, at the expense of the human collection, and not just the intelligence, but the deep intelligence I referred to, if you lose that, you're gonna be at a distinct disadvantage. But, but it's human nature to wanna kill from a distance and use technology to do so. I mean, that's, that's a whole lot easier on the human psyche than, than engaging in a knife fight. 
So I understand that inclination. Uh, but let me ask you a rhetorical question because it, it goes to a bigger issue, both operational and, and legal and philosophical. What about a single operative, a CIA operative, going up to a terrorist in some dark alley in some country that is either unwilling or unable to capture this terrorist and render him to the U.S. or to some other allied country? And this operative has no means to capture him, but he can kill him. What if he walks up and shoots him in the back of the head? Well, that's, in terms of public perception, that's a lot different from cranking a hellfire shot. We really haven't discussed that, that question. And yeah, my preference is to capture them if you can because you get intelligence. Being from Pakistan, it's difficult for me to ask this question, but uh, you did, when you talked about allies, you didn't say Pakistan. Is it an ally or an enemy or somewhere in between? Good, good question. Thank you. Import, important question. The, qu the question was Pakistan. Is it an ally or an enemy or something in between? And you know that I did not reference Pakistan. Pakistan is both the best and the worst. If you look at the number of al-Qaeda leaders captured and killed, what country leads the pack outside of Afghanistan? It's Pakistan. And you look at the thousands of Pakistanis that have been killed fighting al-Qaeda and the Taliban, the Haqqani Network, and others. Outside of Afghanistan, there's no country that's had so much loss of life. Perhaps Iraq, I'm not sure. Maybe Iraq would be a second close, uh, maybe second place. But when I say it's the worst, well, it harbored bin Laden for more than a decade, our number one enemy. They are enemy safe havens in uh, Pakistan that I think present a direct threat to our homeland. I'm increasingly worried about Yemen. I'd be glad to talk about Yemen if you want. So it's a real paradox, an important critical ally, and I've maintained that we must engage with Pakistan. They have 100 nuclear weapons. They've got liberal institutions there that are under siege. They have this creeping Talibanization. There's no easy answer. I do know we cannot walk away, and we've got to engage. We've got to keep working diplomatically, militarily. Uh, it's just too important, 175 million people. Thanks for the question. Are you familiar with the situation where Bin Laden had all of his files and records in a huge cave, and he was hiding in the cave, and we figured it out, and then we charged to try to go in the cave, but missed Bin Laden. This is a special forces team, but uh, they found all these records that we hear so much about, mm -hmm. and they found his cane. Mm -hmm. Is that a story you've heard about? Yes, sir. That's Tora Bora. That's the Battle of Tora, Tora Bora, Bora yes. you're referring to. That's right. Yes, sir. I write about this in the book. Good. It was a, a combined CIA special forces team. This is in the high mountains of right. uh, Afghanistan next to the Pakistani you border. Got it. That's right. And <laughs> it. It's, it's been portrayed as a, a fiasco because bin Laden got away. I disagree with that portrayal. Yeah, bin Laden got away, and it tarnished mm -hmm. what was a spectacular victory. You had hundreds of the enemy killed, zero loss of life on the American side. And all kinds of records. Yes, sir. It was a treasure trove. And it was their plus, command and control center. Plus his cane. That was That's right. <laughs> now, I'll tell you Correct. this story because suddenly, out of the blue, I got pictures of special forces guys who had come home who were in the cave. And they sent me, as a gift, Bin Laden's cane. <laughs> well, that's great. And uh, it's in a safe place. Okay. Well, good. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure it is. <laughs> This is 2012 for the next, for the rest of the decade. Uh, if you were called into the office, the president or somebody, and say, where do we need to put our di diplomatic 
perhaps clandestine and maybe, hopefully not, military resources to their best advantage? Big question. I agree with the current administration, their emphasis on East Asia. Uh, Secretary of Defense Panetta is on a swing through East Asia. Uh, he's visited uh, Singapore and some other uh, key allies there. I think he's in India right now. I, I, I support that. And it's not so much as we need to counter China's weight, and that's a part of it, but it's really more just about the growing importance of East Asia and the amount of trade and all the transnational threats in that, in that region from cyber criminals to maritime pirates to, to others. So if you look at one geography, I would mention that. I would also underscore Mexico. It is, in my belief, the most important national security issue with the least amount of attention. Now, I'll, I'll give you some dollar figures. We spend $2 billion a week in Afghanistan to support our military, $2 billion a week. That's more than we've spent to support our Mexican allies in the last year under the Merida Initiative. But this is really tough because it's not just about projection of American power. It's, it's really about domestic issue, about public health, about law, about philosophy, morality, about religion, it's about our drug consumption, and what do we do? And there are not a lot of politicians stepping forward because guess what, it's really hard, and if they talk about it, that means they have to do something. And it's a lot easier to refer to our friends south of the border and say, well, it's corrupt, it's, it's backward, it's their fault. Let me tell you, the Mexicans, they have come a long way in the last generation. I was just down there, it's breathtaking. Despite this violence, despite this crime, their economy continues to grow. The macroeconomics are terrific. You look at their GDP uh, and their debt-GDP ratio, it's less than 25%. Ours is approaching 100%. They've got some real fiscal discipline. They've got a young, dynamic population. And just think what happens when we help them with this problem. That place is going to take off, I hope. It certainly has got the, the potential. And then all of Latin America, for that matter. You look at the energy discoveries, not just Brazil, but Colombia, elsewhere. Argentina, massive natural gas. The, the dependence on the Middle East is going to lessen in terms of energy. It's going to be more about the Western Hemisphere. So you talk about that's another place. And then I'm worried about Europe as much politically as economically. The focus has been on the economics, but a lot of, lot of stress going on there. Uh, big emphasis on, on NAFTA and on, on the Western Hemisphere. And then a place that's really close to my heart, Africa. We think of Africa, we have all these different images and there's some pretty horrible places, Eastern Congo right now, uh, Somalia, but there's some terrific success stories. Ghana, Tanzania, Zambia, even Mozambique's making some progress. And not just in terms of extractive industries, but this growing middle class. Telecommunications has just it's been on a rocket ship there. We need to be able to understand all these different landscapes and project our power in a constructive way. And not just military power. In fact, we're very good at finding and killing the enemy, and we're getting better and better. There is nothing more lethal than that 20-year-old American warrior. I'm not so concerned about that. What I am concerned about is a projection of non-military, non-covert action power, particularly in these expeditionary environments. You know, we secured Afghanistan 0102, big window of opportunity 02 to 05. We were in Iraq, which was a dumb move, but we didn't project that non-military power. That was a long answer to a good question. I was wondering what your opinion is on the use of the extraordinary rendition program under the Bush administration and the <coughs> illegal use of torture to gather information, intelligence? Yeah, sure. The rendition program was in place for years before the Bush administration. Both what you might call routine rendition, which is when, com when country A 
has got an arrest warrant, and the country B is where that terrorist is located, and the CIA, using their intelligence, using their trusted networks on, around the world, basically brokers the return of that criminal, that wanted fugitive, back to country A. Extraordinary rendition is when the CIA will physically go out directly and snatch that fugitive off the street and then fly him back to the country of origin, the country that's got a legal warrant for him. A lot of these countries don't have extradition treaties, therefore it's rendition, not extradition. The uh, issue, of course, under Bush was there were a couple of big errors, one in particular where the wrong guy was picked up off the street, and there have been some consequences from that. I should just add, of all of man's endeavors, I don't know of anything more imperfect than espionage and war. And uh, that's an example there. Your second question, and, and I, I think it's very effective. I mean, it's taken hundreds of terrorists off the, the street over the last couple of decades and stopped lots of attacks and saved lots of lives. So if you look at the rendition program, I'm, I'm, I'm supporter of it, and I directed many of them when I was in the counterterrorism center. The, the, the enhanced interrogation techniques, I didn't write about it, and I've had some criticism about the book because of that, but I was never directly involved. I never commanded men and women that were in that program, and I had to set some boundaries, and that was the stories I tell. I was directly participating or had people under my command directly participating. That's the, the foundation for the stories in the book, and that excludes enhanced interrogation techniques. I'm not an interrogator. I don't know much about it. I have a personal opinion nonetheless. And that I think the techniques were effective because people I trust have told me so. And when I was at the Department of State as a coordinator for counterterrorism, I benefited from many of these reports that came from CIA detainees. I was reading the intelligence. It helped inform policy decisions. I do not, however, believe the CIA should advocate for enhanced interrogation techniques. I don't think they should make that decision. I don't even think the president should, should make that decision. I think it's a matter for Congress and the American people because it's a big issue. It's far bigger than one organization because it really goes to who we are as a society. And two questions we have to ask. If we engage in enhanced interrogation, borderline torture, or maybe torture, depends on how you define it, well, what do we pay for doing that? What's the price we pay for doing that? But there's a second question we have to ask ourselves. What if we don't employ those techniques, and if they are effective, we don't employ them, are we willing to pay that price? And we haven't had that national debate yet. I object strongly to the politicalization of such tactics. And I have criticized this current administration specifically for that when they came in and questioned the legality of what was lawful tactics under the previous administration. And of course, worst of all, held the CIA specific officers accountable for that. I, I find that pretty, pretty egregious. During the Vietnam War, it became public information uh, toward the end of the war that some of our prisoners of war who had been held as prisoners were kept behind because they were not in the very best of condition. And then, in congressional testimony, months, a couple of years later, I think it was, they had the Czechoslovakian doctor testify that he had been a party to having all of these people flown to Russia to be used as medical guinea pigs. And they, you know, they tracked them and so on and so on and so forth. And then, um, the, uh, but to make a long story short, our country just never seemed to want to get right in the middle of all that, I guess because of Russia. But that was always just a real mystery to me because it was not just something I heard third hand, it was congressional testimony. And this includes a Czechoslovakian doctor that knew this had happened. Oh, and one of our U.S. pilots was ordered to follow the plane that had those men on it. But 
when he testified, they said, well, why did, you didn't do anything aggressive. He says, well, the last thing I would do is shoot them down. And that's the only thing he could have done. You see what I mean? And then that just kind of evaporated into smoke. Is that anything you recall or not? Or maybe you weren't involved in any way. Uh, uh, no, sir, thanks for the question. And uh, I was not involved. I was, uh, I was going to school in Georgia as a boy back during the Vietnam War. <laughs> uh, but but uh, I, I, I've got to say it's, it's, it, it's an important point. It's, it's heartbreaking when you think about all the MIAs. And I'm glad you raised it, sir. Um, we lost a lot of boys from Warren County, Georgia. Going back to the Revolutionary War, I write about it in the book. It's a, a community of, of great service and, and great sacrifice, and I'm, I'm proud of that. Uh, I'll make another comment related to yours, if I may. I talk about the, the bar going up in terms of casualties. And you think of all the MIA in World War II, big wars, Korea, Vietnam, you know, big, big wars. There are different wars, I understand. But hundreds, thousands, when you look at World War II, you know how many MIAs we have right now? In fact, we know where he is. One enemy held prisoner is one. Poor boy from Haley, Idaho. In Vietnam? No, sir, in Afghanistan. In, currently today in Afghanistan. So we've come a long way in that regard, and I know we're working hard to try to get him back. Um, can I close with a vignette? Would you give me two more minutes? Thank, thank you, Beth. Um, this, is, this is important. This is a, a very important story, and, and I think I told it when I was here at the World Affairs Council about four years ago. For those that were here at that time, um, I apologize for repeating myself. It's an important story, at least for me. This was 18 months before 9-11. I was having a secret meeting with Ahmed Shah Massoud, he was our most important Afghan ally. He was the leader of the United Front, also known as the Northern Alliance. And you may recall that Massoud was also uh, a targeted by Al-Qaeda. He was assassinated just before 9-11, a couple of days before 9-11. Two Al-Qaeda operatives posing as journalists. They had an explosive device concealed in a camera. They detonated that. They killed, they killed Massoud. They knew how important he was to our alliance, and they wanted him dead before 9-11. That was Al-Qaeda's plan, and it, they were successful in the execution of that operation. 18 months prior to that, however, and we had already been sending teams into Afghanistan to work with Massoud and his people. In this discussion, and it was a great place, it was in a Northern Alliance safe house up on the, the borderlands. I was there with another CIA officer meeting with Massoud and his men. It was cold and windy and rainy outside, and we were tucked in this nice little little house, uh, had a fire in the fireplace, and, and Afghans are very gracious people, so they served hot sweet tea and dried fruit, dried nuts, and we spent hours talking about our intelligence collection, our very modest covert action, and it was very informative. We had maps all over the place. And th at the end of this long discussion about our future cooperation inside Afghanistan, Massoud, a very gracious, very polite man, very charismatic, tall, lean, with wrinkles in his face. I mean, this is a great warrior. He was known as the Lion of the Panjashir because he had protected his home valley, the Panjashir, from the Soviet incursion. The Soviets were never able to hold the Panjashir. Today, you can go up that valley and see it just littered with Soviet armored vehicles. This was, this was a one tough guy, one smart guy, one one warrior, but in a very polite way, he said, may I ask you one more question? I'm in his safe house, I'm surrounded by his armed men, so I said, sure, you can ask whatever you want. <laughs> uh, he said, you're a great country, I have such admiration for America and your leaders, but your country, your leaders, do they care more about Al-Qaeda and bin Laden or do they care more about the people of Afghanistan? That's one of those moments in your career. And I looked him straight on and I said, we care more about Al-Qaeda. The only people he's talking to in the entire U.S. government is my men, and at that point, me. Our mission was specific, it was singular, it was to find and engage Al-Qaeda. 
there was no U.S. policy regarding Afghanistan. There was no effort to engage the Afghan people. Now, Masood's a pretty sly guy. I think he was testing me to see if I had enough gumption to tell him the truth. But also, as good leaders do, he was teaching me a lesson, and that's what I'm going to share with you right now. And the lesson is, you've got to find and engage and sometimes kill the enemy, sometimes without mercy, particularly an enemy like al-Qaeda. But that's only part of it. You've got to engage with the people. Increasingly, this is a war about the people, among the people, not just nation states and armies. And we have to rethink war. This was a lesson from Masood, a lesson I learned along the way and share with you tonight. Thank you very much. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.